What a wonderful opportunity we have to be together on the first of the week to share in all good things that the Lord has provided for us, certainly to remember the sacrifice of His Son and the, uh, the death that He paid for our behalf. I'm grateful to be finally here with you, thankful for all your prayers on our behalf as we were preparing over these last several months to make our move. My first opportunity to speak with you at large about that. We are so grateful, so thankful. God has blessed us richly through you, and we pray that together with you as we're here that we'll be a blessing to you as you've already been to us. We thank you for that, and we thank him most of all for that. As we're looking at this lesson from today, from 1 Chronicles chapter 13, I almost said the same thing as I was looking at these notes before. 1 Corinthians, it'd be hard not to say that, but 1 Chronicles chapter 13, I want you to think about this day in Israel. It is a day of great rejoicing. This is David bringing home the ark to Jerusalem. And all of Israel is gathered together, and as we see in verse 8 of this text, David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, with trumpets. I mean, this is a party. This is a huge day of festival in Israel. After all, the ark of God has been neglected for more than 40 years, in a national sense at least. Probably more like 50 years by this point. We're still fairly early into David's uh, kingship, but he is in Jerusalem at this point, so it's after the Hebron years. The ark has not been inquired of. The Lord has not been inquired of by use of the ark since the days of Saul. And if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, really since before the days of Saul. You may remember, some of the ones who were over 50 on this day standing here may remember when the battle with the Philistines took place and they brought out the ark of God kind of as a luck charm. Well, we, we lost the battle because we didn't have the ark of God, so let's bring out the ark of God. We'll bring him into the battle. And the Philistines took the ark and carried it away and terrible things happened to their god Dagon because of the ark's presence. But the ark has been gone from its normal use in Israel now for going on 50 years. But today, today it's coming home to Jerusalem and David is leading this parade of all of this singing and these festivities and what a glorious day that must be. But at the height of the celebration, here's the ark coming through on this parade cart that's all dolled up to show its glory and its beauty and the oxen stumble at the threshing floor as a flat spot coming down the hill and the oxen stumble, and the cart starts to rock, and the holy ark of God is going to fall on the ground. And you're one of these men that's accompanying the ark in this festival, and simply Uzzah sticks out his hand. He doesn't want the holiest of all objects in Israel to fall on the ground, so he reaches out his hand just to hold it still on the cart. What a terrible mistake it would be if the, cart fell on, if the ark fell on the ground, and yet, in that instant, he dies before the Lord. So this day of great rejoicing turns into a day of tragedy. And here we see what we would all imagine as a really good man. He's trying to do a good thing as he's reached out his hand to keep the ark from falling on the ground. And yet the Lord has struck him dead before the whole assembly. What a moment that must have been. What we see in seeking the ark, in essence, is seeking God himself. What they said in verse 6 is they want to bring up the ark that, the, that belongs to Judah. They want to bring it up uh, to, I'm sorry, from Kiriath-Urim, which belongs to Judah. They want to bring up the ark of God who dwells between the cherubim where his name is proclaimed. They're seeking him. 
And I appreciated the reading that Luke did in his version. It says, because they haven't inquired of him since the days of Saul. That's what they need. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 and following, especially verse 22 of Exodus 25, God says, I will come there and meet with you on the mercy seat between the cherubim. That's the idea. It's the presence of God in the ark that is to sit in the innermost sanctum of the, of the tabernacle at the time. David later will hand off to his son the right to build this temple that God allows him to build there in Jerusalem. But this is the centerpiece of God's presence, if you will, in Israel that has now been the cause of Uzzah's death. So what went wrong in the death of this good man? This is certainly the right thing to do, to seek the presence of God, to have his ark in Jerusalem, in your central city now. This is the right thing to do. However, is there a proper way to go about bringing the ark? Is there a proper way to seek the presence of the Lord? Is there a correct way to approach him for worship? I want to suggest to you, I want to show you, that there absolutely is. And this text will make that clear for us. David's approach is wrong from the beginning. And that's what brings the tragedy in this day that should have been a day of absolute glory in Israel. So what went wrong in the death of this good man? I want to suggest that it begins with a wrong beginning. Let's read again verses 1 through 4 of 1 Chronicles 13. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us. And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. And all the assembly said they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. <laughs> How can this be a wrong beginning? What a great idea that David has here. But look where he began. He consults with the captains and with every leader. He goes to the important people in Israel and he seeks their opinion. And once he's got them on his side, perhaps he's looking for some support for the ones who exert some influence. He wants to do this thing that hasn't been done in an entire generation. The ark wasn't there during the days of Saul. It hasn't been there so far in the days of David. And the people loved David. They were singing that he had slain his ten thousands while Saul had slain his thousands. So here is the beloved king, and he's going to try something new, and he's concerned about how this is going to go over. Now, you think this would be an easy sell to bring the ark of God back. But he consults first with the important people. He wants to make sure he's got the backing of those who have influence. But unfortunately, David is perhaps not aware yet in his youth as a king that the rich the politically minded, others who have some influence are often the least interested, really, in the will of God. Now, they may say things that sound like they're interested. They may do things that have an appearance. But in the most part, the rich and the politically minded and these others that have influence tend to believe they've already got everything together. They've got all they need without the Lord. And so they're the least interested in the will of God. We have an example of a man like this. In Luke chapter 18, if you'll turn with me quickly there, in Luke chapter 18, we meet a ruler, a certain ruler, as Luke calls him, and that's the same idea behind this word. He's one of the important people in Israel. He's rich, we learn from other texts, or from this text as well. He's young, we learn. And so he's a man of means who's probably inherited this since he's young and has so much. Perhaps he deals well with people. He has certain influence. And he's come to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit 
eternal life, he says in verse 18 of Luke 18. And Jesus said to him in verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. He's really good at the externals. He's been able to do these things that will endear him to the people and show him to be a nice religious man. And yet when Jesus heard these things, he said, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. The thing he lacked was love for God. When Jesus asked him to decide between God or his riches, this man chose to keep his earthly riches and his position. Here's a man who looks great. He's asking the right kind of questions. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He's calling Jesus the good teacher before everybody. And yet, he's not truly loving God. He's a man of influence, just like the ones that David would have called and got his opinion from. But David should have first consulted with God. There is no one more important than him. Even all these important people in Israel, God is the most important. And he's the one that's actually being sought. So David consulted with the wrong people first, but he didn't stop there. <laughs> After he got the backing of the important people, then he went out to all Israel and began to send messengers out. Look at this great idea that myself and the important people have come up with. If this seems good to you, and if it's of the Lord, did you notice the order there? If it seems good to you, and if it's of the Lord, then let's do this thing. He included the Lord there, but he placed the opinion of the people above the opinion of the Lord. He kind of threw the Lord in as an afterthought here. Now, we want to make sure we mention God when we're talking about things that are religious. We've got, to, we've got to get him in there somewhere. But it's an afterthought. Is David still seeking the favor of the people? Is he still seeking to please the people so he can continue to receive the songs of praise that he had been receiving from before? Perhaps. He wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem. His desire is in the right place. But he's going about it all wrong from the very beginning. And unfortunately... Sometimes what we consider to be worship is nothing more than seeking to please people according to what seems good. Certainly our religious neighbors are all about this. I want to make it so that we are a seeker-friendly church. We might fall into that kind of a temptation. No, we want this to be a church that serves the Lord. We want to be a church that glorifies God. And if that appeals to people because they also want to glorify God, then those are the kind of people that the gospel is meant to attract. And that's the kind of people that serving God is meant to appeal to. But if all we want to do is make some kind of a social club, if all we want is something where we kind of feel like we're doing good things, but God's really just an afterthought, where God is really only mentioned when we're coming together for our services, but he's not part of my life outside of here, then something is wrong. You see often a bumper sticker that will say, attend the church of your choice. You see churches that are trying their hardest, especially now online, to appeal to what people like and hardly seeking to appeal to what the Lord likes. I was speaking with Grady earlier in the week. I was talking about a time when I visited a congregation that I'd been a part of when I was a child. And they had these, these comment cards. And they were asking, what do you like most about worship? Do you want a rock band? Do you want a classical jazz band? Do you want to start meeting at 8 in the morning? Would you rather meet at 2 in the afternoon? And there were all these questions, what appeals most to you? And not once was there a scripture. Not once was there, what do you believe God would want us to do? 
And so that's what I wrote on the card is, what appeals most to God? And handed that card in. I don't know if they ever read that. But some, sometimes the temptation is, if it feels good to me, if it seems right in my eyes, certainly God's going to like that. If it's pleasurable to me, then God will enjoy it. And that's an attitude that comes across in so many churches, and God then becomes an afterthought. If a thing is of the Lord our God, then it doesn't matter what anybody else's opinion is. Once he's spoken regarding worship, it's only his opinion that matters. Galatians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul had to deal with this. The Galatians were starting to accept some new doctrine. He told them to watch out because that was something that should be anathema, destroyed by God. Galatians 1, verses 9 and 10, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be a curse, let him be anathema. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. We can't please both God and man unless we're pleasing God to the benefit of men who are seeking to please God. In John chapter 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. We're not to be like the world. And it's his word that will make us different. And it's his word that will unify us as we're seeking to glorify him. So David began with the higher-ups. And then, if it seemed good to all the people, and I want you to notice verse 4. This is really interesting how the text lays this out for us. The thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So what happened? Our practice shows our heart. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments in John 14, 15. He didn't say, if you love me, tell everybody how much you love me. We ought to do that as well. But he says, keep my commandments. I want to see what you're doing. Then I'll know if you love me or don't love me. Our practice shows our hearts. Once the people all agreed this is the right thing to do, God's not mentioned anymore in the text until he breaks out against Uzzah. He's, he's an afterthought, but actually, he's not even an afterthought anymore. This is just what we're going to do. Everybody agrees this is what we ought to do. We are the people of God, so it's got to be correct. God's not even an afterthought. Once the people spoke, David no longer asked, is this of the Lord? He just started doing it. He just started going with what felt right. And so his error was in first seeking people. Even though the claim is we're seeking God, sometimes in practice, it's just seeking people. I just want to be seen as someone who loves the Lord. We must begin with the Lord. We must make certain that we're beginning with the Lord. It's not beginning with the church. I'm going to find a church that appeals to me, and then I'll try to serve the Lord. That's what some people do. It's never going to work. Because if you're looking for what appeals to you, you're not going to be able to please the Lord. We don't start with the right pastor. I've got to find a pastor that just makes me feel comfortable. He doesn't step on my toes. He speaks in a way that I really enjoy. He really, uh, speaks the kind of language that I understand. No. <laughs> Does he speak like John the Baptist spoke? Does he speak like the Apostle Paul? He was despicable, they said, the way he spoke. Yet they were Christians, weren't they? They were converted, even though really his manner was not that convincing. But the word sure was. He spoke the truth. John the Baptist was offensive to look at. Maybe even smelled offensive. He came out of the wilderness wearing camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, a crazy guy. Yet the word was so convincing that the whole multitude of Judea and Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized. It's not our family's history that ought to draw us. It's not what grandma and grandpa did or what mom and dad always said. It's not my own feelings. It's what has God said. 
That's where we need to begin. Sometimes it's hard to go and weed through all those other things. I'm grateful that we have a church that brings us pleasure to be together with. It ought to. It's our family. It's God's family. We ought to have pleasure in that, but it ought to be the first thing we seek. What we ought to seek is the Lord first. And then if we're encouraged and built up by our brethren, that's a blessing. And it ought to be that way. But if it's, we just like this certain preacher, so whatever he says, I'm just going to go, no, don't do that. Don't take it from me. Don't take it from Grady. Look for yourself. And if we're not speaking God's word, then you please come and correct us. Challenge us on that. We'll see that in a moment. That needed to happen to David, and it didn't. It's not our feelings. It's not anything but the Lord, which is where we ought to start. David didn't do that. Truth is, God is seeking for us to worship him. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, we're speaking about the Samaritans receiving the word of God. The Samaritan woman, as Jesus was correcting her error, her religious error, where ought we to worship? Is it here? Is it in Jerusalem? He said, the time is coming when neither one of those places is going to matter. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth because he is seeking such to be his worshipers. God is seeking for us, but he wants us to worship him according to his will. And so that's why Jesus in John chapter 17, the great um, uh, priestly prayer that he offers up. We know the prayers that are, that are mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where he's praying for himself. But John 17 goes into details about the prayers for those who are to come. He began, sanctify them by your truth, John 17, verse 17. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us and that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. What a blessing that God is seeking to put in us as he unites us. But it's only possible if in truth we are following him by his word. David began in a very wrong way. In order truly to seek the Lord, we must begin by consulting him for his word. We must listen to his opinion. We must do what is right in his eyes. It doesn't matter what the important people think. It doesn't matter what the whole congregation thinks. It doesn't matter what I think. What has the Lord said? Let's do that. There's something else that went wrong. There were some wrong decisions. You might imagine this to be the case. If you start consulting in the wrong place, you're going to end up with wrong decisions based on where you consulted. 1 Chronicles 13, verses 5 through 9. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to, uh, to Bala, that is Kiriath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim where his name is proclaimed. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah, and Ohio drove the, court, the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and on with trumpets. And when they came to Kaidan's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. It's a couple of people making wrong decisions this day. First, they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Can you imagine the scene? <laughs> this is a day of festivities, and this is something to be really glorified. The, the ark of God, we've got to bring this thing home in a big way. <laughs> There's no lack of zeal. They are certainly zealous for the Lord's ark. They want to make sure that everybody can see this. They spare no expense. They have a new cart. They've made all the preparations. They're bringing home the ark of God in all its glory. 
But in their excitement to glorify God, they forgot His will. Have <laughs> you ever seen some of the things that, that megachurches advertise that they're going to be doing in the name of the Lord? There's some amazing looking things. You can find some amazingly well-prepared websites that are beautiful to look at, but produce nothing in terms of the glory of God. If we beautify things externally and carnally to the best of our ability, they're not going to carry the glory that the Lord has put into things spiritually. God had already given specific instructions regarding carrying the ark. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 13 through 15, he was very explicit. In fact, there's an instruction here that I, that I think really is helpful to see how much God wanted them to follow this. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. <laughs> Don't ever take them out. So no one will be tempted to carry the ark in a different way. Leave the poles in there. <laughs> and so God was very explicit. But carrying the ark on a new cart, that just looks glorious. I mean, this thing, we can make it really look good. Carrying on a new cart looks glorious. Carrying it on the poles is glorious. We've got to make that distinction. What glorifies God is doing His will, not doing what we think His will should have been. When they placed it on a cart, they rejected the will of the Lord in favor of the will of men. When Jesus talked to the Pharisees about this, they were full of pomp and circumstance. They were full of these glorious ideas from their robes down to the very actions they did as they gave alms with a flourish, as they played the trumpet. They were glorifying God, they thought. And Jesus said they were not. He said that in vain they were worshiping Him. Because they were no longer observing His doctrines, but they were teaching as His doctrines the doctrines of men. It was a glorious moment for Israel, but it should have been a glorious moment for God. Sometimes we confuse those two things. 1 Peter 4.11 says we should speak as the oracles of God so that God receives the glory. <laughs> because when we change the doctrine, even in the smallest amount, the glory is no longer God's because it's no longer His Word. It's become ours. When we practice it, even in the smallest, slightest difference, it's no longer God's will being done. It's ours being done. And it's vain worship. And it made the glory Israel's and not God's. And God showed them in a hard way as Uzzah stuck out his hand to hold the ark. How inglorious this moment really was. This most sacred object in all of Israel. I can understand what Uzzah was thinking. I probably would have done the same thing if I was in Uzzah's shoes, if I had not been prepared the way I'm praying that we will all be prepared. God had prohibited the Israelites to touch the ark, really even to look at it. In Numbers 4, he gives specific instructions for the Levites to go in and cover the ark with all of these tapestries that they had made so that when the Kohathites who were supposed to carry this thing on the poles when they would go in they wouldn't accidentally see the ark and die from just looking at it that's how holy and sacred this thing was God had prohibited them to touch it or even look at it back in Numbers 4 so Uzzah's natural reaction as he sees the ark going is to steady it on the cart he doesn't want it to become profaned by touching the profane ground that is an area that's not holy it's just a threshing floor and here's the holy ark, and he wants to make sure it stays holy, but his unholy hand has now profaned the ark when he touches it. Because no one is as holy as God, who's the one who's enthroned between those cherubim. 
And on the surface, this seems like a good thing to hold the ark. But his natural reaction is a rejection of God's will because God said, don't touch it. Carry it on the poles. And so the Lord struck him dead right there at that moment. Both of these men, David and Uzzah, acted without thinking first of God's will. Now, again, we may make excuses for what happened in this moment, but God's will had already been revealed. David here was more concerned with the approval of Israel and the mighty men than he was with the will of God. In the end, that's what his practice shows. Now, it's hard to accuse someone of that, but the text shows that's where David's head was. It wasn't with God. Uzzah, in the end, was more concerned with the ark, a holy object, a very holy object, but an object, than with the will of God, who is the holy being. <laughs> because God said one thing, and Uzzah did something different, because he was worried about the ark more than about what God had said. Does that sound harsh? It's what happened. The Lord's servant must make decisions based on the Lord's word. It doesn't matter what others think about it or what they feel about it. If I'm going to be the Lord's servant, as Paul said in Galatians 1.10, I can't be worried about what men think. I must strive to please the Lord. That's got to be what I'm doing. And in the case of Uzzah, the Lord's servant must have a renewed mind, doing God's will as an action, as a proaction, instead of as a reaction. <laughs> he reacted to the circumstance of the moment. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says we are to have our minds transformed, renewed by the Word of God. As we study and as we grow in our learning, it changes the way we look at the world. We are proactively involved in serving God rather than reacting at any moment, whatever happens, if we're trained properly. If Uzzah were trained properly, he wouldn't have reached his hand out. He would have got out of the way and said, look, this mess was caused by something else. But it's not what he did. What we really see here is the question of God's authority that's learned the hard way. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God to me? I can understand his frustration. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah there in verse 10. Though we might have seen what Uzzah was doing as a good thing, it was against God's will. How often does Satan try to convince us that this is really a good thing, even though God said it this way, your, your way is a good thing too. I've literally sat across the table studying for someone who says, I know this is what the Bible says, but my pastor says it's this way, and so we're going to do it this way. And I said, but you know, that's the opposite of what God said. I know it's the opposite, but it's also good because our pastor's anointed by God would never tell us a lie. You see how people can convince themselves to do something that's not good, believing it's good? Uzzah was a quick reaction. You didn't have time to think very much about it. Some people spend their whole lives not thinking about what's being presented to them when they can read it for themselves and say, that's what God said, but this is also good. It's not. What God said is God's will. Those who do God's will are the ones who will obtain life, and all others will die. Romans chapter 2, Paul is concerned for the Jews as he's writing this. In chapter 10, he, he opens up very much about his desire for them and how they have sought their own sense of justice. But he says 
in verses 7 and 8. He begins in verse 6 saying that God's going to render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. It's just two sides is all there is. Either you're doing what's right and patiently, continually doing it, or you're seeking the things that make for the wrath of God. Those are the only two possibilities. So if you can say, I know this is what God said, but I want to do this, you're saying, I'm choosing not to patiently, continually do what the Lord has said just in this thing, <laughs> but it's not good. Those who do God's will obtain life. It's not enough to know God's will. It's not enough even to love it. How many people do we hear say, I just love the word of God, but they don't do it. <laughs> David loved the word of God, but in this instant, he didn't do it. Uzzah was a servant of God, but in this instant, he wasn't doing God's will. We must do God's will. And so David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak. Some of those same people, as I'm pointing to the Bible, saying, look, you're saying you're going to do this, but the Bible says this, become angry with me. And I say, why are you angry with me? <laughs> this is what the Bible says. You should be angry with yourself for not doing it. Maybe you should be angry for the ones who've been misleading you all this time. I'm trying to help you see the truth. But a reaction, a common reaction, is become angry because we want to in some way feel like we're doing the right thing. David's trying to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, and God has done this thing against him now. Where'd the trouble start? It wasn't with God. The trouble's with David. He's overcome with his emotion as he thinks about all of these terrible things that have transpired. And it's awful, I understand. But this is not where he needs to be thinking. Here his servant is dead. The ark of God is now hopelessly here on the ground. I presume it fell. <laughs> How am I going to get it to Jerusalem now? If it's so hard to seek the presence of the Lord, who can ever manage? You ever talk to somebody who has that kind of a hopeless outlook for coming to God? It's just so hard. God's so nitpicky. He just wants all these details. Who can ever manage? God has written us centuries worth of his love right here. All the details of what he expects from us. And it's not hard. It's not hard to understand. Some of it's difficult to enact because it goes against our carnal nature. Usually when someone tells me, I can't understand the Bible, I say, yes, you can. You don't want to do it. That's the challenge. It's not hard to understand. Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians, the things I've written, when you read, you may understand the things that I've been given to know about the Lord. It's not hard. It is hard to do. And so sometimes we think God has just made it too tough and we give up. He hasn't made it too tough. The instructions for carrying the ark, those are really simple. We've read them already. All that's written about it, we've read five, six, seven verses. We know how to carry the ark, put it on poles. But this lesson was a tough lesson. I want you to think about another tough lesson, Nadab and Abihu in Levit Leviticus chapter 10. The very first day as they're offering up before the Lord this this first offering, to start the work of the tabernacle, Leviticus chapter 10, I want you to see what the Lord told his, their father to do, or not to do in the case. Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. The sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. 
This is not David's son who's lying there dead. It's one of David's servants. It's a good man. But Aaron lost two of his sons, of the only four he had. Almost half of the Levitical priesthood was done away in that one heir. And yet God said, I'm the one who must be glorified. What matters most is my honor and my holiness and my glory, and you will keep your mouth shut. (laughs) So Aaron didn't visibly mourn his children. In fact, later in the text, God says, you want to mourn? Mourn that I had to breach out against these two. Not that they died, but that I had to do this on a day that should have been for joy and glory. These two had to die. What matters most is God's holiness and glory, not how we feel, how we think, how we want to do it. David became angry, it says in the text. And then it says he was afraid. And he asked, how can I bring the ark of God to me? You know what? He should have started there. (laughs) David should have started where he ended up that day. And that's really what this lesson was about, was waking David up to recognize he's not doing God's will at this point in his life. Proverb 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. As David came to this fear, this respect for God, in this awesome moment that happened, he asked the right question, How can I bring the ark of God to me? Now he's probably challenging God with this question. He's not asking it properly yet. By the time we get to chapter 15, we find out he does ask that question again, seriously. And he receives the answer that he already knew. As king, he's been making a copy of the law for himself. He's written those verses in Exodus 25. He's written Numbers 4 before. He knows that law. But he forgot to enact it. When we fear the Lord enough to ask, how would you like us to do this? Then we'll do well. Authority is the power to command. And God, because he's the creator, because he is the sovereign, has the power and the wisdom of eternity, his authority, his power to command is supreme. David's desire to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem was a good thing. But his disdain for God's authority helped lead to Uzzah's death. He disdained God's authority when he rejected doing it. His authority had been revealed, and it's been revealed to us. Jesus said in John 12, 48, I didn't come to judge you. It's God's word, the word that I speak. That's what's going to judge you in the final day. I've given you all the rules of the game. What's interesting to think about here, and some people will bring this argument up, God never said they couldn't carry this thing on a new cart. In fact, the Philistines had carried it on a new cart. They sent it back to Israel on a new cart. So that's where he got this idea. But God had, in his command, told them exactly how to carry it, so that excluded any other ways. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And I think it's a parallel verse to Romans 10, 17 that tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's sort of a simpler way of saying what's said here in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God's revelation to us is very simple. He reveals what he wants us to know and what he wants us to do. Almost always his his commandments are positive. Do these things in this way. Occasionally he'll say, don't do this. Can you imagine how big the Bible would have to be if he had to tell us everything not to do? (laughs) He tells us what to do and the ways to do it. And that then leaves out the other things. In order to worship God properly, we need to know what is revealed, not what's not revealed. And that's where most of the arguments come in. 
People are arguing over what's not in the Bible instead of what's actually in the Bible. God has revealed his will, and he expects that we can understand it and that we can do it. Some final applications, and we'll wrap the lesson up. As we look at this day of glory that became a day of tragedy, we need to understand that even good leaders make mistakes. And we understand that bad leaders are going to make mistakes. They're not at all inclined to do the things that God really wants to do. But here's a man, David, who later on, Paul says, is a man after God's own heart. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Here's a man who desires to do God's will. We see that so much. Israel trusted him. They trusted this vision he had to bring this ark of God back to Jerusalem. Here's a generation that was longing for this kind of leadership because they'd been under Saul for so long. A man who turned his back on God. And so he wants to bring the ark of God home. He's got all Israel behind him. But David really exhibits a lack of faith in God's word by the way he brings the ark. And that leads to Uzzah's death. We cannot simply trust and follow men. We must know God's word for ourselves. That's why it's so important that we're studying the word on our own, not just accepting what myself or someone else teaches. I'm grateful for the classes that we have and the ability we have to study together, both online and here in person. But we ought to be studying and learning for ourselves. 1 John 4, verse 1, John told the brethren of the first century, test the spirits. Test those who are teaching because not all the spirits that are out there have gone out from God. There's going to be much false teaching done. And you need to be able to test it, which means you need to know the truth. The Galatians, he expected, would be able to tell the difference in whatever new was coming along that was different from what they had already taught. How is that possible? It's because they were studying and they knew what the truth was. A second thing, this may be obvious at this point, what seems good is not always right. It's so easy for Satan to influence us. All of Israel was dancing and singing beside that cart. <laughs> Boy, what a glorious day. And yet Uzzah still died. If you had asked anybody that day if this was a good thing they were doing, they would have all said, sure, they're all involved. And it led to Uzzah's death, even so. Either nobody knew better, or probably the other. No one had the courage to confront David on his ear, this is David and all the, great, the big people in Israel that are putting this thing on the cart. Uzzah should have gone up and said, Sir, all due respect, my lord, my king, that, that doesn't go on the cart. There's poles in there for a reason. Anyone in Israel could have seen those poles and said, Look, in that book by Moses, Exodus, those poles are there for a reason. Why is this thing on a cart? If anybody had asked that, it might have made David stop and think. But nobody did. How many of us have sat through church service after church service? How many of our religious friends, week after week, listen to someone teaching error and they never take the courage to go up and say, wait a second, my Bible says it this way. What are you trying to tell me? What is it we're supposed to be doing here? That's not disrespectful. It's disrespectful to God when we say, well, I know the Bible says this, but my preacher, my pastor, my friend says this, I'll just do this. <laughs> That's disrespectful to God. And so no one confronted David on his error. In the end, of course, worship is about doing God's will, not about doing what seems right. I want to worship God, the God of the universe, the one who revealed himself and his will to me. I can't just guess and hope I get it right. He's given me all I need to know right here. All things that pertain to life and godliness have been revealed through his will for me. And if I reject that, then I'm just showing that I have disdain for what his real desire is. And finally, we must respect God's authority. He's the one that has authority. 
David and Uzzah both knew God's will, but they didn't do it. And when they found themselves not doing God's will, situations came up that they didn't have any way to know how to deal with now. This shouldn't have happened. And so, obviously, they reacted poorly to the situation. We must be proactive in doing God's will, as I mentioned before. I want you to think about Psalm 119, 105. David wrote this later, where it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now you think if David had hidden the word about carrying the ark on poles in his heart, this incident wouldn't have happened? He was studying ahead of time. He was writing these psalms to glorify the Lord. And he was hiding the word in his heart. Colossians 3, 16 and 17, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If it's in you richly dwelling, that's what's going to come out because the next part of the verse says you're going to then speak to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. You're going to be encouraging one another through the things that are dwelling in you through the word of Christ. David learned that hard lesson. This has a happy ending, if you will. The ark does come to Jerusalem. In 1 Chronicles 15, verses 1 and 2, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. In verses 12 through 15, as he encourages the Levites, he says to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. And all was well when they did it according to the word of the Lord. Uzzah's death is a really hard lesson. And it testifies to the fact that there is a proper way to seek the Lord and a proper way to worship the Lord. And neither David nor Uzzah that day, nor all of Israel, who they involved in this, were doing things properly. But what about you? And we help you to seek God and to worship Him according to His Word. That's our desire for you, those who are online with us, those who are here today. This lesson doesn't have to go unattended. There's a reason God registered this lesson for us in the pages of Scripture. This history that happened in Israel, you think the Israelites that came later and read about that when they came to visit the ark in, in Jerusalem, you think they didn't think about how important it is to follow God at His Word? How important it is for us today to follow God at His Word. Our desire for you is that you would learn, together with us from the Scriptures, to follow God's will in His way. If you're not a Christian, we'd love to help you with that today. If you're willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to come forward and have your sins washed away in baptism as you repent of those, we stand ready to help you with that. We'd love to help you with that. If as a Christian you have been sort of despising the Word of God, maybe not, you wouldn't say that out loud, no, I don't want to do what God says, but in your practice you've been showing your heart and not doing what God has said in the way He has said. We want to hold your hands up and help you to serve God properly as well. We want you to have the courage to stand up and say, wait a second, that's not what's written. Let's do it the way it's written. May God be glorified in our service to Him. If we can help you in any way, please make your need known. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage your decision.